Hi, everybody. I hope you are all safe and sound. Uh, welcome to the Avram Davidson Universe, the Philip K. Dick birthday edition. Uh, today is indeed Philip K. Dick's birthday, December 16th, 2020. And I thought a great way to celebrate his birthday would be to have a narration done of Avram Davidson's original review of The Man in the High Castle uh, from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, June 1963, uh, and a letter to Locus in 1982 written by Avram Davidson as well. Uh, in many ways, I owe Philip K. Dick a debt of gratitude. Uh, it was finding the beautiful letters between Philip K. Dick, my godfather Avram, and my mom, Grania Davis, that had me start looking closer at Avram's work and then falling in love with his stories. I loved my godfather and knew that he was a writer, but I never knew that he was such a well-regarded writer. I, of course, knew who Philip K. Dick was. I knew my mom dated him for a time, but the history went right over my head. What I did love was Blade Runner, Total Recall, The Minority Report, and, of course, The Man in the High Castle. Uh, the beautiful letters between my mom, Avram, and Phil... Uh, told of a absolutely wonderful relationship and is an amazing story in and of itself. So with that, happy birthday, Phil. And to the audience, please enjoy. Avram Davidson's review of The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick from the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, June 1963. This is a remarkable book. Just how remarkable it is is little suggested by the basic premise, which is that the United States lost the Second World War. Other writers, such as Boudris and Kornbluth, have based stories on this notion, but in neither case was the story one of their best. If Mr. Dick ever writes anything better than this, indeed, if he ever writes anything else as good, he deserves to take his place among the foremost in the field. How he escaped my notice until now, I own to you, I do not know. I don't think he will elude me again. The United States of America lost the Second World War. The United States of America now occupies less territory than it did prior to the Mexican War and is the puppet of Nazi Germany. The Pacific states of America go the way Imperial Japan wants them to go. And in between, poor, but more or less free, are the Rocky Mountain states. Some of the action takes place there, most of it in the PSA. Underground? What underground? There was, in our time continuum, one against the Germans and the Japanese, but that was while the war was still on. There was none afterwards and there is none in this post-war America either. Had Mr. Dick posited one, he would have had another bam-pow tonight we liberate Chicago adventure story. He's been too clever to fall into that trap. Given even a slight opportunity, people, if completely conquered, tend to admire their conquerors, and then, logically enough, to emulate them. I cannot sufficiently praise the dexterous way in which he shows that process. For example, in the relationship between R. Childen, owner of Artistic American Handicrafts, Inc., his good customer, Mr. Tagomi, official of the Japanese trade mission, the de facto rulers of the PSA, and Mr. and Mrs. Kasuura, a young couple here on a sort of Nipponese Point Four program. 
It may seem easy enough to reverse what happened to and in Japan vis-a-vis the Americans after 1945. To do it all might be easy, but Mr. Dick has done it well, which is quite another thing. The gum-chewing, boorish Japanese draftees with their greedy, peasant faces wandering up Market Street, gaping at the body shows, the sex movies, the shooting galleries, the cheap nightclubs with photos of middle-aged blondes holding their nipples between their wrinkled fingers and leering. The honky-tonk jazz slums that made up most of the flat part of San Francisco, rickety tin and board shacks that had sprung up from the ruins even before the last bomb fell. I could arrange to arrive at your apartment, yes, Jildon said. Bringing several hand cases, I can suggest, in context, at your leisure, this, of course, is our specialty. He dropped his eyes so as to conceal his hope. There might be thousands of dollars involved. I am getting in a New England table. Maple, all wood pegged, no nails. Immense beauty and worth, and a mirror from the time of the 1812 war, and also the aboriginal art, a group of vegetable-dyed goat-hair rugs. I don't know. I may not be picking the right passage with this last quote, but... Time after time, Mr. Dick clearly shows his Americans either speaking imperfectly in Japanese or attempting to speak English like Japanese. But he never says that this is what he is doing. Sometimes he has them thinking like Japanese with dreadful concern over face and manners. Well, perhaps a minor point, and I don't want to get hung up on it, but it's very effective. There is Tagomi. Tagomi is awaiting Mr. Baines, a Swedish businessman who is deeply interested in something more than Sweden and business. There is Frank Frick, a master craftsman and a war veteran who has not only forgiven his conquerors, he is thankful for them. Frink is a Jew. It is death to be a Jew nowadays in the USA, but in the PSA, these civilized, bandy-legged little shrimps would no more set up gas ovens than they would melt their wives into sealing wax. The Japanese are still consolidating the co-prosperity sphere. The Germans are moving into outer space. There are no more Russians to speak of. Frank's ex-wife, Juliana, is wandering through the RMS with a strange, intent foreigner who talks endlessly of the glories of fascism. Everybody is reading and talking about a book called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy by Hawthorne Abinson, who lives in a house, the High Castle, protected by barbed wire and machine guns. The reason? Grasshopper dares to depict a world in which the Allied, and not the Axis powers, won the Second World War. Juliana and her escort are looking for him. But... Abinson is not the principal personality of Mr. Dick's book, nor is Childen, Takomi, Baines, Frank, nor Juliana. The principal personality is the millennia-old I Ching, the Book of Changes, an oracular work. Takomi uses it, Frank uses it, so does Juliana, and her search for Abinson is based partly on her conviction that he uses it too. In calling this venerable Chinese work a personality, I have been preceded, I find, by the late C.G. Jung, 
and from his preface to the translation, continually referred to by Mr. Dick, I quote the following. For more than 30 years, written in 1949, I have interested myself in this oracle technique, or method, of exploring the unconscious. I was already familiar with the I Ching. To see the I Ching at work, I personified the book, in a sense. And he goes into details of his consulting the oracle and his conviction that its replies were correct. A steady appeal to it has to be based on belief in chance and the super-significant configurations of the moment. It is opposed to causality. It has always seemed to me that Leninism and psychoanalysis were alike in denying causality. Jung says here that the axioms of causality are being shaken to their foundations by modern physics. Just what Mr. Dick intends to imply or declare about the nature of the present by his use of the Book of Changes, I do not know. But whatever it may be, the effect is fascinating. As is, of course, the whole book. It's all here. Extrapolation, suspense, action, art, philosophy, plot, character. Really, a superior work of fiction. Don't take it out of the library. Buy it. Avram Davidson, Letter to Locus Before getting for review a copy of The Man in the High Castle, it seems to me I had never heard of Philip K. Dick. Perhaps I'm not widely known for giving rave reviews, but I gave one then. Phil said he believed it was my review which won him the Hugo and gave his career a much-needed boost. Maybe so. After that, he sure didn't need any outside help, though prior to writing it, one of his then-agents told me he wrote half a dozen, a dozen mainstream novels which no publisher bought. Only a writer knows what something like that means. There really wasn't anybody quite like him. His personality and talents were unique. And if his troubles in life seem, in so many ways, far from unique, he always brought his unique slant on things to them. No, I guess he didn't bring it. It just came. For sure, I never heard of anyone else in this century being accused by an Anglo-Catholic priest of harboring Lutheran attitudes on the holy sacraments. Immensely warm, he was immensely helpful whenever he could be. Once, when he had heard I was broke and looking wistfully at the dog food cans, he arranged for a hundred-dollar loan for me from someone I'd never heard of. Later, when I spoke of repaying this, Phil said confidently, He has forgotten it. Did Phil pay it? Phil wouldn't say. Once, when I felt I needed to see a shrink, he introduced me to his, and I saw Dr. five or six times. Bill? What Bill? I never got one. It was not with clichés that he responded to events, but with lines from 17th-century English poems or 19th-century German songs. He was not always happy. Who above the moron level is? Not that those below it always are, and perhaps it was anguish alone which brought him to drugs, usually entirely legally. Knowing that even if curiosity brings you there, the answers often pose their own problems, he tried to help those who had clearly gotten wrong ones. Not surprisingly, he was, twice, robbed blind. Although, in one section of his brilliant brain, he blamed this on the president of the CIA, 
With another section of it, he knew very well who it really was, and wrote, Of drug addicts with insect-cool eyes, assessing you and your property for every cent it's worth. His problems of mind, though, sometimes interpreted in terms of today's problem-filled times, went back to his childhood. And he realized this very keenly. With a dreadfully wry use of punctuation, he wrote of my first, quote, nervous breakdown, end quote. Sometimes he seemed flip, as when he said that the average American suffers from two delusions. One is that God is dead, and the other is that there is a difference between brands of cigarettes. We popped in and out of each other's lives often in odd ways, as though via ectoplasm or the astral plane. Two years or so ago, I had a letter from him asking that I answer a simple test, merely to reassure him that I was really his dear friend Avram Davidson and not an imposter or dokos in the original Greek. The test began with a text in the book of Numbers and went on from there. I passed. A few more marvelous letters came. Then the mists came up from the thorny, wasted fields which lay between us, as they must between even the best of friends. Avram Davidson <laughs>